you wouldn't mind opening your scriptures this morning to John chapter 12. We're going to be picking up in verse 20, technically this morning is where we're going to begin reading. Uh, the, the, the message that the Lord shared with the, me this morning is in kind of perfect keeping with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we will remember at the end of our sermon time. Um, but last week we discussed uh, sort of the response that the, uh, the various people had to the raising of, of Lazarus and the work that Jesus Christ had been doing some was healthy, some was unhealthy. Uh, and we are slowly, well, now we're beginning to really pick up steam. We're moving towards this inevitable day of Friday. Um, we are now walking into the Passover week here in the life of Jesus Christ. We're heading towards uh, Good Friday. We're heading towards the cross and ultimately heading towards the resurrection. But the sermon title today based out of John 12, is this idea of when losing in our life is really winning. When losing is really winning. So much of our identity and our existence in life is defined by winning. I was just talking to Andy Weber this morning. Today is a national holiday if you're a redneck. Today is the Daytona 500. And uh, out of uh, all those cars that, that uh, race, let me put you on the spot, Andy. Do you know how many cars race today? 40, okay? And there's only one that will win. Um, perhaps it's an American thing. Nowadays, it kind of starts from the moment we retrieve our children out of the womb in the hospital room. We begin to instill in them this significant value based upon winning. It's why we put our four-year-olds in travel t-ball and travel soccer. Uh, it's why we encourage our sixth graders or our second graders to run for class representative or class president. It's why as adults we hang our hats on quotes from famous winning coaches who say things like this, there is no second place, there's only a first place loser. Um, we joke about those things, but everything about us is sort of defined by and we identify ourselves based upon the successes that we have, the achievements that we arrive at. And Jesus has turned that completely on its head. And I would submit to you as sort of a, a premise for the message this morning that as Christians, one of the healthiest notions, one of the healthiest concepts, biblically speaking, that we can adopt is this idea that when you lose yourself, you really win. You see, there's, there's this strange transition that's taking place here at the beginning of John chapter 12. On the surface, it seems strange anyway. Uh, on the surface, after they arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, right? He goes and he tells his disciples, he says, you'll find a donkey, go untie the colt, bring it to me. And they, Jesus proceeds to ride into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday on the back of a colt, appearing to be the, the victorious Messiah, the victorious king that the Israelites were looking for. You know, this was the guy who was going to overthrow Rome. This is the guy who was going to restore power and position to the nation of Israel once again, which God had promised. On the surface, everybody is looking at Jesus and they're saying, yes, yes, yes. 
Even the fickle are looking at him saying, yes. And it was true what the Pharisees had said. They were, the, the Pharisees were so frustrated and angry. And what they were saying was, yes, can't you see? Look at him riding into Jerusalem. Even the whole world has gone after him. But why did they go after him? Not because he was the winner that they thought he was, but because he was going to lay himself down. They were going after him because of an alternate reality. The disciples are seeing a rise in power. They're seeing a coup. They're seeing a new way of life. Perhaps a new military authority. And what is Jesus seeing on that Palm Sunday? He's seeing the cross. He's seeing death. He's seeing ultimate loss of Himself. Which brings me to a question. If this is what the cross is to Christ, why do we do things like wear crosses around our neck? Why do we use them as jewelry? Never was there a bigger symbol of death, defeat, control, manipulation, and punishment than there was in the form of the Roman cross. Never. It epitomized everything about the losing battle that is humanity. The cross emphasized defeat. The cross emphasized punishment. The cross emphasized loss. Yet our Jesus' words that we read, will read today remind us that because of the cross of Christ, the world would forever symbolize it as something completely different than what Rome intended. Let's go to the Word together. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, as we pick up this account after his riding into Jerusalem on the back of that colt. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, or whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must, must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? You see what he's doing? Already they're getting confused. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you who just rode in as our conquering king are going to die. I thought the Messiah, if that's who you are, the Messiah is supposed to remain forever. 
And they said, Who is the Son of Man, this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. We're going to read a little bit more of this story in just a second, but I want to begin to share with you this idea, this concept. Answer this question. How does the cross transfer losing into winning? How does a cross transfer losing into winning? Because the Roman cross meant one thing, the cross of Christ means something completely different. And here's the first point this morning. The cross says death. The cross of Christ says die to self and glorify the Father. The cross just sim- the Roman cross simply says death. But yet the cross of Christ says something completely different. It says death, yes. It says die to yourself in order that the Father may be glorified. As the world began to chase after this idea of Jesus, this concept of who they thought He was, who they wanted Him to be, He says some pretty weighty words. This is what He says. He said, the time has come for the Son to be glorified. The time has come for the name of the Father to be glorified. And death is the means to accomplish this. This, he says, was the purpose for which he came. Jesus Christ came to die on a cross in order that the Father may be glorified. That, my friends, is the most important concept in the entire New Testament. The Son of God came in order to die on a cross to glorify His Heavenly Father. We've made Christianity about a lot of stuff, but at the heart of it, unless this truth is the foundational truth, everything else is irrelevant. You see, the world thought they were getting what they wanted in the life of Jesus. We were getting our king, we're getting our deliverer, we're getting our our military leader, we're going to get our coup, we're going to get rid of Rome. That's what they saw. That's not why Jesus came. The enemies of Jesus thought they were getting what they wanted in the death of Jesus. They thought if we can just get rid of this guy, his power will be gone. If we can just kill him, his influence will diminish forever. Not true either. You see, Jesus is victorious both in life and in death. All the while, these two groups are thinking these two different things about Jesus. God was getting exactly what He wanted and what He needed in the death of Jesus Christ. In this one amazing act, we see the glorification of God through the ultimate sacrifice of obedience. Jesus had to die in order for the Father, in order for you and I to be redeemed and for the Father to receive glory. Now the second truth is this. What is the, how does the cross transfer losing into winning? Well, the Roman cross says you are hated. Whoever hung on a cross was despised. Absolutely hated. The cross of Christ says hate your life and gain your forever life. 
The cross of Christ says, hate your life and gain your forever life. This is going to be a difficult concept, especially for a new believer. This word hate is so strong. It's so powerful. It's so um, not politically correct. And yet, that's exactly what God commands of us. In order to come to Christ, in order to be saved in Jesus Christ, it requires biblically, according to what Jesus says, it demands of us that we hate our own lives. Here Jesus is talking about two types of people in the world. One, those that love their own life and its stuff and its idols and its things more than they love Him. And then there's a second group of people. They're those that in comparison to the love for Christ, hate their lives. There's This is all relative. If if who we are before we meet Christ involves a passion for stuff and idolatrous, idolatrous heart towards things and people, uh, a perversion in behavior and preferences, when we come to Christ, our hatred for those things must be so blinding in comparison to the now love and, and clinging to Christ that we experience. And just the opposite, once you have Christ in your life, the priority of stuff and things and idolatrous items and, and, and love for people is, it just pales. It's almost non-existent in comparison to who Christ is in your life. I, I talk about this a lot. I could give a lot of examples of this, but, and we're going to read a couple scriptures in a second, but, the, the nuts and bolts of this is, is pretty um, offensive if you have not been saved by Christ. If you've not trusted in Christ for deliverance, for a forgiveness of sins, for eternal life, this is going to sound like nonsense, and you're welcome to clue me out, just tune me out here if you want this morning. But the truth is this. My wife and the relationship that we have is, is meaningless in comparison to the love and relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. The love that I have for my children in comparison to the love that I have for Christ could almost be seen as hatred in comparison to the love that Jesus has for me and the love that I have for Him. And just to back up this weird, politically incorrect statement, it it is a hard truth. Those who have eternal life are those who despise who they were and have become in comparison to the beauty of Christ and what He makes them. It's hard because it means relative to Him, every aspect of our life is lost. In Luke 9, Jesus alludes to this. In another place, He said, and He said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This idea that any gain in your life needs to be viewed as loss in comparison to the value and and worth of knowing and having Jesus Christ in your life. And again in Matthew 10, even harsher words, Jesus says this, If you love your father or mother more than you love Me, you are not worthy of being Mine. My goodness, 
how offensive of a statement that is. If you are more concerned about loving another person, even if it's your mother or father, if you're more concerned about loving them in comparison to how much you love me, then forget about it. Don't even bother following me. You're not worthy of following me. That does not preach in modern culture today. And then he goes on. I mean, the most he picks on the most innocent. And if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. See, the first couple offensive statements about loving your mother and father more than me and loving your children more than me, he qualifies it there at the end, doesn't he? He says, now, I promise you this. Listen to me, he says, I promise you this. Those relationships, if you're willing to lay them down so that you might love me first, I'll give you something even better. I'll give you a meaningful life that transcends simply the relationships that you have in your life. I'll make those relationships stronger. I'll make those relationships better. I'll give you purpose outside of simply whether you know somebody or somebody loves you. I'll give you an identity bigger than simply the job that you have or how other people view you. I promise that if you lay your life down for me, if you lose your life for me, I will replace it with something that is more meaningful. And before you think I'm preaching a prosperity gospel which says that you give your life to Jesus so that you can get something, that's not what I'm saying. You lose your life and simply because you now belong to Him, you come to the appreciation and understanding that you now have everything. Consider... um, Paul's reflection on this idea as he reflected on his past life. I mean, nobody was more qualified to be a superior religionist than the Apostle Paul. This guy had it all together. And yet, he tells the church at Philippi, from jail, mind you, he writes this from the middle of prison. He says in Philippians 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, dog dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. That, my friends, is a life statement. He's saying, I had all this stuff going for me. Everything from a worldly perspective, I had obtained. I had achieved. I had arrived. I had position. I had authority. I had power. I had education. I was blameless in the things of the law, he says. And I chose to throw them all down and trample on them as if they were trash for the sake of knowing Christ and knowing the power of His resurrection. If I could just step on some toes this morning because the Lord's been stepping on my toes the past couple weeks about this. Uh, I think this is missing. I don't think we have any concept, even those among us, many of us who would call ourselves believers, have any idea of what it means to lose ourselves, to throw our lives away, to die to self for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. How could we when our life is so comfortable and easy? Easy Christianity. And yet Paul says, I had everything I wanted. And yet I chose to throw it all away, lose it, so that I could know Christ. Here is what I consider, this this is the point that spoke the most to me this week. Point three. The cross says your impact is over. Somebody died on the cross, there's no more impact left. You die, you're done. The cross of Christ says die to self and multiply your impact. Only Jesus could take the greatest symbol of death and turn it into the greatest symbol of difference in the world. Jesus says that it's when a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies that it produces a harvest. That's a that's a constant banging drum analogy throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament. Die and make a difference. Die and multiply. Um, We don't talk about it a lot here. Maybe we should talk about it more. But supposedly, some of you have t-shirts on. Scott was baptized in a t-shirt this morning. Supposedly, the mission of our church is to know Jesus Christ, to grow in Him, and then multiply the Gospel through our lives. Multiply. Anything short of moving from knowing Him to growing Him to multiplying His love and His Gospel in your life is falling short as a believer in Jesus Christ. To just come and learn and grow is good, but unless we're producing a harvest, we're selling ourselves in the ministry of Jesus way short. The only good soil is the soil where death fertilization, and fruitful reproduction is occurring. Matthew 13. The Lord said this in verses 3-9. to And He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of the soil. But when the sun rose... They were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, 
some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, in the parable of the four soils, there's only one soil that matters. Good soil. The Bible would say that the other three soils, one is Satan coming and snatching away the truth of the Gospel. The other soil that falls on a rocky ground is the soil that people wither under the persecution and struggles of life and they bail out on their uh, so-called commitment to Jesus. And then there's the the uh, uh, thorn, the thorny soil where the thorns come up, uh, which would be the, the pleasures and the lusts and the enjoyment of this life that comes and chokes away the truth of who Jesus Christ is. There's only one good soil. And how do you know what the good soil is? Reproduction. Your impact is being multiplied. If I could be offensive again this morning, we're not multiplying. We're not. I'm not sharing Christ enough. I'm not seeing enough people come to Jesus Christ. You're not. The church overall is not. Not just Living Legacy Church. The churches in Hershey, the churches in Pennsylvania, the churches across the United States of America have gotten away from sharing Christ personally, relationally, one-on-one, and turned it into something that it's not, which is a social club. That's not good soil. Good soil multiplies. Matt Chandler, uh, who is a pastor and has written several books that I'm just really fond of, and he has a great way of um, speaking truth. He said this about the cross. He said, it's a fearful, trembling thing to take up the cross. But Jesus, Jesus says we must do that. So Paul insists we must do it. We can't stop trusting Him at conversion. We must keep trusting Him, walking by faith, feeling the weight of the cross each day, knowing that God is at work in and through us, and believing our suffering is worth it. Dying to self looks like kingdom impact. Show me somebody who's making the biggest difference for the kingdom of God, and I'll show you somebody who has... um, Modeled dying to self. It looks like passionately pursuing Christ regardless of our agendas, regardless of our fears, regardless of our hang-ups, regardless of our resources or what we perceive as our lack of resources. I'm just driving over here this morning. My wife and I were having the conversation about what it is about church planting that we love so much. And it's... um, uh, Mark Batterson, who pastors National City Capital Baptist Church, said something like that in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, he planted that church. When he planted the church, one of their core values is that we will make decisions and be driven by faith and never fear. There's so many things we don't do because we're fearful, and that's not biblical. And I love church planters because they have no choice. I mean, everything... It, A church planter hangs his family, they hang their livelihood, their very existence out on the line, as do so many of our foreign missionaries. They're just there. Like, what do they have? They have no, many times they have no resources, they're very limited resources, very little time, certainly no personal money, um, and many of them, like me, go into it just really dumb. But all they have is faith. And God honors that. 
we don't share Christ. We don't see our lives making a multiplying impact because we're afraid. We're afraid of how we'll look. We're afraid, we're afraid that we may fail. We're afraid that we may disappoint somebody, that we may lose a relationship. I'd rather lose a relationship than be accused of um, losing somebody to hell because I did not tell them about the gospel of Christ. Let me drive this home in a very practical way this morning, church. I prepared personally two slides this morning I wanted to throw up at this point. I got some stuff that's just burning on my heart that I want to see our church do. Things that are on the calendar, things that could be on the calendar, dreams that I have. So two slides, if you'd follow with me. And If we are people who are willing to die to ourselves and not just do things corporately as a church, but do things individually in sharing Christ, do things as community groups in ministering to the people that are around us and the people that are in our groups, thinking strategically about how we can, instead of how we can gather together, how we can share Jesus. These are the, some of the things that are burning on my heart. In the month of April, but do you know that for the past six years, I've prayer walked every street in the town of Hershey. Some of you have come from time to time to join me on that. We're going to do it again this April. Every Wednesday evening, we're going to go out and we're going to prayer walk the streets of Hershey. Many of you have come and you may think to yourself, well, I went. I mean, like, that didn't really seem that strategic or like that big of a deal. We just went and we prayed. We stopped at street corners. We prayed for those street names. We prayed for house numbers. We prayed for uh, schools that we passed. We prayed for homes that had little tight toys in the, in the yard to pray for those families and children. I'm telling you that there are people that are here and there are people that have gotten saved over the course of the past five years as a result of us praying. I'm going to invite you to you say, I don't even, I'm not quite comfortable sharing my faith or I don't know how to do that. Just come and pray over your community. And this year, we're going to hand out some invitations. We're going to use our youth to hand out some invitations to come to music camp so that we can share Christ with children and families. In April, uh, you know, on April 7th, the movie The Case for Christ is coming out. Now, I've read this book two or three times. I've used this book as an apologetic tool to share Christ. It's the story of Lee Strobel, who in the 1980s watched his wife get, he was an atheist, he watched his wife get saved and baptized. He was an investigative journalist at the time with a law degree. He decided that he was going to write a book that was going to debunk the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He was so angry that his wife got saved, he was going to write a story proving Jesus wrong. Guess what happened? Lee Strobel's a pastor. He's um, just this phenomenal believer and, and making such a huge multiplication impact for Christ. The case for Christ is his story. You know why I love this? This isn't a feel-good story. This is a story about a man who asked all the hard questions about Jesus. And that's what the movie's going to do. It's going to ask all the hard questions. Why should we believe the Gospels? How do we know that the Bible is trustworthy? How do we know that Jesus actually died and rose again? That were, those were the questions he asked. Here's what I want to do as a church. I want to I uh, make available to you um, resources so that you can invite friends to movie night. We're going to have, I don't know if this is the right thing to do stewardship-wise or not, we're going to have movie gift cards and invitation cards. And I want you to take the movie gift cards and the invitation cards, and I want you to take your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones, whoever needs to know Jesus, we're going to take them to the movies. 
I want them to see this. Their life will be changed. They, they will not be able to walk out of this movie without being confronted with their own eternal reality. It's going to require you to invite him, though. The end of April, uh, my wife works with this beautiful lady, uh, and her son was a missionary uh, to Yemen. He was murdered by uh, Al-Qaeda five years ago. Um, we're going to put on a ladies' event, and she's going to come share about tragedy over triumph. She has, she has prayed for those who have killed her son. She's seen the impact that her son's life has made even after his death. There's video footage of Muslims in Yemen holding protests of anger and animosity towards Al-Qaeda because they killed this beautiful man who was making, he was a Christian man who was making such a difference in their lives that it, we always joke, you know, what if the doors of our church closed? Would the community even notice? That missionary was killed by Al-Qaeda. The whole community came out to protest because his life had been taken by terrorists. His mom's going to come and share. We're going to have a ladies' event. and We're working out the details of that. If you know somebody who's hurting, if you know somebody who is angry at God because of things that are going on in their life, this is the kind of thing that they need to be a part of. In May, uh, he doesn't know this yet. I just sprung this on him. But Steve Amsdell has been putting together some evangelism training so that we can begin to, all of us can be on the same page so that nobody has the excuse, I don't know how to share Christ. Steve's going to begin leading in evangelism training and then we're going to invite those people who have been training in evangelism to go as people come and visit our church to go and visit them and share the gospel. And then they know how to share the gospel with their neighbors. Their community groups will know how to invite people and share Christ within their community groups. In June, we're doing our music camp. I'm going to ask again, I'm going to ask our community groups to take the lead in doing the follow-up on this. These are families. These aren't just children. These are families that are represented here. We need to touch them in warm ways so that they feel like they're welcome to come back to our church. In July, we're going to do Christmas. We're going to put our Christmas tree up in the back. And we have local ministries and organizations that we're going to support again as a church in July slash August. Um, last year we were approached, to, it was too last minute, I mean it was really last minute. The Derry Township um, Parks and Recreation Director asked our church if we wanted to put a program on some Saturday in the square over the summer in Hershey. We're going to begin praying about this. I'd love to hear your ideas. Maybe we need to put on a concert or maybe we need to do a barbecue or I don't know what, but... Um, that's our opportunity as a church to be a real visible influence in our community. Next page, Ben. Yeah, I'm not done yet. In August, we're doing our teacher supply outreach. This is a beautiful ministry that God has literally, right, Pam Weber, just like thrown right in our lap. These are teachers at Derry Township School who are begging for help in order that they don't have to quit. They can quit paying for all their supplies out of their own pocket. So as the school year is getting ready to ramp up, again, we're going to solicit um, our folks' supplies so that we can purchase supplies for those teachers. And you know what's already beginning to happen? The principal there and the superintendent are um, beginning to pass information our way about individual families within the school district who are in need. They say, oh, that church is serious about helping families and helping teachers. You know, we have a family that has a specific need, and we keep praying that way. 
fall, winter, we're going to send our first team to London to work on planting a church with church planters through the IMB in London. And you may want to begin praying about going on that trip as well. Um, We have upcoming community group target projects. Did you know each community group in our church has money budgeted? I mean, we've set aside money in our budget, like 150 bucks, for you to come together as a community group and say, what kind of thing can we do to make an impact in the lives of individuals in our demographic, our community group? Uh, The Dairy Township Food Bank, they're in desperate need of volunteers and resources. You don't have to just serve Christ here on Sunday morning. It's like Patty McCorkle serving at the uh, Morning Star Pregnancy Center. You know, Dairy Township Food Bank, they need volunteers there as well. Looking for community organizations and opportunities for you to be the hands and feet of Christ. What does all this mean? If you're just willing to lay some stuff down, if I'm willing to lay some stuff down, we underestimate how big of an impact Jesus can have through us. But it's only on the good soil that the real difference is going to occur. Point four this morning is this. The cross says, follow the rules or else. That's what Roman crucifixion was all about. It was to tell everybody, you must follow the rules of Rome or you will pay the price. And what does the cross of Christ say? The cross of Christ says, follow and serve Jesus and gain His eternal presence in your life. We all want Christ's presence in our life. As punitive as a Roman crucifixion was, as a form of capital punishment, it was even more effective in dissuading dissenters and traitors and criminals against Rome. What the Roman cross said was, your death will be like this. It will be horrific. It will be painful. It will be long. And it will be without mercy. So don't do it. And yet, in verse 26, Jesus says, Embrace my cross by serving me and thus following me. And in that, I will be a forever presence in your life. A death in Christ looks like an eternity of walking victoriously in Him. See, the Roman cross said, Punishment. Jesus' cross says, presence and pleasure and joy because He's in your life. Later during His last week before the cross, in just a few weeks we'll read this again, He tells His disciples in John 14.3, He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's interesting if you think about that. Jesus spoke about eternity not in regards to necessarily the physicality of it, but the presence of Him. That there where I am, there you may be also. You want to know what heaven looks like? You're in the presence of Jesus. Forever. It's pretty good. But as if that's not good enough, Jesus goes on to say, if you lay your life down for the cross, my Father will honor you. Athletes are honored by their fans. Soldiers are honored by their countrymen. Academic types are honored by their peers. But nothing is greater in life 
than the opportunity to be honored by the living God. It's such a ridiculous thought to even think about it, that Jesus would even utter those things. The person who lays their life down, who loses their life for me, my Father will honor them. Who is God that He should have to honor me in anything? I'm a ridiculous, sinful, useless, broken individual. Big old cracked jar of clay. And yet, Jesus says that if I lay my life down for Him, Father is going to honor me. I'm still trying to get my mind around that one. Let me read one last part of this story this morning as we close in this sermon. John 12, picking up in verse 37. Though he had done so many things before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, Lord, who has believed that he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their feet and turn, and I would heal them. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me, this is the theological point here, the last one, listen to this verse. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the last point this morning. The Roman cross says your wrongdoings must be judged. The cross of Christ says only one wrongdoing remains to be judged. Do you know that there's only one sin that sends a person to hell? There's only one sin that sends a person to hell. The rejection of Jesus Christ as God's Son. The rejection of Jesus Christ as God's propitiation for sin. God's uh, God poured His wrath out and judged our sin upon the shoulders of His Son, Jesus Christ, when He hung on the cross. Now we are judged based upon we, whether we choose Him or reject Him. We reject God's Son and His words and we deserve eternal death. If we cling to the cross on which Jesus bled and died for the forgiveness of our sins, and by faith we trust in Him, for the forgiveness, then we have eternal life. We get so hung up on sin and which sin is worth more and which one's worth less and will God overlook this and wink at that. I'm just sharing with you the words of Jesus Himself, the One who died on the cross for you and I, and He said this, 
There's only one thing that's going to be judged. Have you accepted me or rejected me? That's it. So as we come to his table today, that's what we're going to remember. A beautiful Savior who climbed the cross voluntarily. We think Rome put him there. They didn't. He went there so that the weight of our sin might be placed upon him and that we might receive forgiveness. I'm going to ask our men to come forward as we get ready for our deacons, as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. And I want to share with you a verse as they come forward. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, and we read in Luke chapter 22 these words. It says, When the hour came, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant. Established by my blood, it is shed for you. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This table is open to everyone who has a born-again, believing relationship in Jesus Christ. If you're walking in a healthy relationship with Him and a healthy relationship with His body, the church, you're welcome here this morning. We're going to distribute these elements. And as Rachel plays, I'd ask that you reflect and pray upon who you are because of what Christ has.